If you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 9. We are in the middle of a series called Rhythms of Grace, and throughout this series, we are exploring a number of spiritual disciplines together, and today we are looking at the discipline or the rhythm of fasting. Now, I know that even just saying that will cause some of you to tune out. Uh, Next week's message is on feasting. That one's a lot more marketable than fasting is, but nevertheless, Today we come to this great discipline of fasting. Now, fasting actually occupies a strange place in our society. On the one hand, it's seen as something for the super spiritual, right? I mean, maybe this is for the desert monk or for the religious guru to practice. But on the other hand, I think fasting of one type or another, is actually all the rage today. I mean, you can't go very far or very long without someone talking about all the health benefits of intermittent fasting or juice cleanse or something along those lines. And so we come to this kind of strange place as we deal with the topic of fasting. Where does it fit for us as Christians? Well, fasting is a vast subject. The the Bible mentions fasting in a variety of contexts in both the Old and the New Testament. There's not sort of one definitive passage about fasting, so we will jump around a little bit today, but I do want to anchor us in a passage from the Gospel of Matthew and then proceed from that. So Matthew chapter 9 records this conversation where the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus with a question, and it's a question about fasting. And we're going to read together verses 14 to 17 of John chapter 9. This is what it says. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Well, this might seem like a, a strange place to kind of anchor a message about the Christian practice of fasting because it seems like maybe Jesus downplays the practice a little bit. But as I grouped together a few dozen passages about fasting this week, I kept returning to the profound truths that are communicated here in Matthew chapter 9. Now, I tried to keep the outline as simple as possible today. I failed in that. Uh, But I do think there are two main things that we need to understand about fasting. And the first one is that fasting is, is one of the most misunderstood spiritual disciplines. So the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus with a question, and the question is really quite simple. Why is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? So it's a simple question, but there's actually a lot of complexity behind it. Now, this doesn't seem like one of those places where those who approached Jesus with a question were doing it in such a way so to try to trip him up. It seems like their question is genuine. Why do we fast? Why has John taught us to fast? Why do the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? 
Now, if you were a respected Jewish leader in the first century or even just a faithful follower of the Jewish religion, it would have been inconceivable that you wouldn't fast regularly. Observant Jews fasted on Mondays and Wednesdays. And so the disciples of John the Baptist are puzzled by the behavior of Jesus and his disciples. John the Baptist understood that his role, his primary role, the sole purpose really of his ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus and to point others to him. And so now John's disciples are wondering, look, if Jesus is so great, I mean, if he's such a great religious leader, why don't he and his disciples fast the way the rest of us do? Hasn't he taught them what's really important? Now, if they were puzzled by Jesus' disciples not fasting, they were no doubt equally puzzled by Jesus' answer. Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus' point was that now is not the time for my disciples to fast. You don't fast in the midst of a wedding celebration. Weddings are occasions for celebration and great joy and feasting, not mourning and fasting. But Jesus says that the time for his disciples to fast will come, but that time is not now. So at the very least, we can see that the disciples of John and Jesus had different understandings about the purpose of fasting. Now, that conversation took place 2,000 years ago in a culture quite different from ours, but I think misunderstandings about the Christian nature of fasting continue today. So I'd put it this way. There are wrong ways to think about fasting. In its most basic form, fasting is abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. But people fast for a variety of reasons, including today. So maybe it's good at the outset to clarify what fasting is not, or at least what Christian fasting is not. And I would say, firstly, that fasting is not a hunger strike. Now, maybe we don't see as much of this as we once did, but every now and then someone will go on a hunger strike to attract attention to a cause or a movement. Gandhi was famous for employing this type of strategy. One of of his biographers observed that this very Indian strategy worked for Gandhi. His fasting undoubtedly touched more hearts than anything else he did. Not just in India, but practically everywhere, men were haunted by the image of a frail little man cheerfully enduring privation for the sake of principle. Now, the idea behind that, the idea behind Gandhi's fasting as a political statement or a hunger strike actually came from the ancient laws of Manu, where a creditor could only collect a debt owed him by shaming the debtor. So he would sit outside the debtor's house day after day without eating until the debtor was shamed into paying his debt. Now, that might have been an effective political strategy, but it is not a parallel with Christian fasting. It's not a hunger strike, either against political structures or against God to get him to do something. We could also say that biblical fasting is not a health fad or a dieting strategy. And I say this simply to distinguish biblical fasting from intermittent fasting. It's not to say there's anything wrong with intermittent fasting. 
But the motivation for doing it is entirely different. I mean, you can find lots of information about both the benefits and the dangers of intermittent fasting online. That's not really my concern. You might find that that works great for weight loss or better sleep or whatever, but the goal of biblical fasting is not weight loss or looking good in the mirror. Now, I'm not saying you can't incorporate intermittent fasting with biblical fasting, but there is a tendency among some Christians to kind of just put a spiritual spin on what really are secular strategies or secular practices. So a few years back, there was a sort of Christian dieting sensation called the Daniel Plan. And the name came from a reference in the book of Daniel where it says this. Test your servants. This is what Daniel said and his companions. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables, right? So here's the Daniel plan. Just eat vegetables and drink water and, you know, your results will be amazing. Now, I don't know why it is that Christians feel the need to latch on to these things as if the Bible were a dieting manual. If that were the case, maybe we should adopt John the Baptist's diet of locusts and wild honey. Now, I'm sure that's a book waiting to be written and published. I might even do it. But look, Daniel and his companions, they engaged in a partial fast. They abstained from certain foods. But the reason they did it had nothing to do with a dieting craze. Biblical fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Third thing to remember about fasting is that fasting is not an end in itself or a means of righteousness. You know, lots of people around the world fast. Most major religions have some component of fasting as part of their regular practice. So Orthodox Jews fast on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which just passed. Muslims fast during Ramadan. The Brahmins, the highest caste in Hinduism, practice severe fasting. And I would just say that fasting can easily become a ritual you do because you think it earns you favor with God. That is not the biblical model or picture of fasting. Jesus tells this short but powerful parable. And he says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. See, look, you can be very regimented in your practice of spiritual disciplines, things like giving and things like fasting. But those things will not earn you a right standing with God. Jesus' teaching is clear. 
The only way for us to have a right standing with God is through the mercy of God. So there are wrong ways to think about fasting. We should also remember there are wrong ways to fast. The two main errors I want to highlight in regard to this, the first wrong way to fast is to do it in such a way that it draws attention to yourself. And Jesus speaks to this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is similar to what we talked about last week with regard to prayer. The Pharisees went out of their way to make sure everyone knew they were righteous. They would go out of their way to make sure everyone knew they were fasting. So they would choose their attire. They would not wash. They would go about with, you know, a long face or a somber look so that people who saw them would say, wow, they look so disheveled and unkempt. They must be, they must be fasting. They must really be righteous. And there's a subtle danger in this for all of us, that we do our righteousness to be seen by others. Even if you don't fast, you can do lots of outward things to signal to others how deeply spiritual or virtuous you are. One writer referred to this as peacocking, right? You display your righteousness the way a male peacock just sort of casually kind of struts out there and opens the, his, his, the tail, uh, his feathers on his tail, right? Just to display all of the great colors. And you can do this. You can do it with your Instagram posts, right? It's just you and your Bible out in nature, drinking your shade-grown fair trade coffee from a recyclable cup wearing your organic cotton 10-tree shirt because, you know, they plant 10 trees for every shirt you buy. And Tom's on your feet because, you know, they give away a pair of shoes for every pair of shoes you buy. I mean, look at all the good you're doing. Our culture's current obsession is with virtue signaling, making sure everyone else knows how morally and spiritually superior you are to everyone else. And Jesus' teaching about doing all of our acts of righteousness secretly without drawing attention to ourselves cuts against all of that. So if we're going to fast, we want to do it in such a way that it doesn't draw attention to ourselves. Now, I think this is somewhat hard to say this in the midst of a series where we are encouraging everyone to engage with these disciplines. And so I do want to encourage you to engage with the discipline of fasting. But this might just be one of those weeks where you just have to say, you know what, I'm going to give fasting a try. I'm going to skip a meal or a day's worth of meals and devote that time to the disciplines from the first two weeks, Bible intake and prayer or listening and speaking. But I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to post about it. I'm not going to, you know, go about with sort of a long face or, I got this headache because, you know, I'm fasting. 
do it in such a way that, that even your coworkers, your family, are, aren't just going to you know, have to be forced to ask, why aren't you eating? Just do it as, as between you and the Lord. That's what Jesus encourages us to do. So one wrong way to do it is to draw attention to ourselves. A second wrong way to fast is to think that it somehow fulfills your spiritual duty. It's a great chapter on fasting in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah talks about what constitutes true and false fasting in Isaiah chapter 58. And I'd encourage you to read it. But listen to part of what God says through him. God says this, "Is, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The specific thing that God was addressing through Isaiah was the tendency religious people sometimes have to go through the motions of performing some type of religious activity like fasting without giving thought to the actions of your life in relation to others, right? You can check the thing off, fast it. Jesus spoke about this very thing to the religious leaders of his day. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he doesn't say, look, stop tithing. What he says is don't think you fulfilled your spiritual duty because you gave. Don't think you fulfilled your spiritual duty because you've fasted or because you've prayed, or because you've read your Bible. Scribes and Pharisees were so careful to make sure they could check off all the boxes when it came to the external demonstrations of righteousness, but they missed God's heart for the people around them. And in the same way, we have to be careful that we don't see these spiritual disciplines as something we practice independent of love for neighbor. We don't want to stand before God and say, oh yeah, I read my Bible, I prayed, I even fasted, but I didn't do anything to alleviate the suffering of the millions of the people in the world living in abject poverty. No access to clean drinking water or proper sanitation, or I didn't even really pay any attention to those who were subject to human trafficking. So don't think that fasting or any of the disciplines is a substitute for loving your neighbor. Well, so far, I'm not sure I've really sold you on the idea of fasting. I mean, all I've done so far is to point out the wrong ways to think about it and the wrong ways to do it. So let's just return to our passage in Matthew 9. John's disciples come to Jesus and ask him, why don't your disciples fast? And this is the answer Jesus gives in verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn? As long as the bridegroom is with them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what is the the period he's talking about when his disciples will fast? Well, there have been some who've wondered if Jesus saw any meaningful place for fasting in the life of his followers based on this 
statement, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And, and so some have suggested, well, what he's referring to is, you know, when he's taken away, arrested and crucified, it's that intervening period between his crucifixion and his resurrection. That was a moment for mourning and fasting. I appreciate the sentiment of that, but I, I don't think that's actually what Jesus was saying. Now, there's a sense in which, as Christians, we live in the newness of God's kingdom. There's a sense in which Christians ought to be characterized by joy and celebration and not mourning. Jesus has come. He's conquered death. But we live in the tension of the already and the not yet. We live in the reality that Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. And so we long for his return. Jesus says his disciples will fast in the days between his being taken away and his return. And the only other time Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom is in the parable that he tells in Matthew 25... And there, it's Jesus' second coming that is referred to as the arrival of the bridegroom. So I think that the days when Jesus' disciples or followers will fast is the time between his departure from this world and his return. That time is now. I like the way John Piper summarized this passage in connection with the the new wine and the old wineskins in relation to fasting. Here's what he said. What then shall we say? Are we to fast as Christians or are we not? Is fasting Christian or isn't it? I believe the answer is that the new wine of Christ's presence demands not no fasting, but new fasting. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. That what Jesus calls us to is not no fasting, but new fasting. The old ways of doing it won't work. That doesn't mean we reject fasting, but that as Christians, we do it differently. The new wine will not fit into those old wineskins. And I suspect this is actually part of the reason historically why Christians changed their fast days from Mondays and Thursdays to Wednesdays and Fridays. And you actually find that change in one of the oldest surviving writings from the early church, something known as the Didache which instructed Christians to change the days that they fasted. Now, the reason they did that was to communicate both the continuity with the old and the discontinuity of the new. In other words, there's still a place for fasting, but we don't do it in the way it was done in the past. So again, it's not no fasting, but new fasting. So let me just try to highlight the positive side of fasting. And and here's what I would say is that fasting does play an important role in the Christian life. This is actually fairly easy to establish biblically. Firstly, because there is an expectation and precedent for Christians to fast. Now, when it comes to the expectation that Jesus' followers will fast, I mean, we don't need to look any further than this passage in Matthew chapter 9. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But we could also think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he gave instructions about fasting. Remember, he said, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you do it, here's how you're supposed to do it. So rather than seeing fasting as something radical to do or only for the super spiritual, we should see it as normal. We should see it as a rhythm of grace. 
The precedent part of it comes from two factors. The first is that as you read through the Bible, you will find that the list of those who fasted reads like a who's who of the Bible. I mean, just think of some of the individuals. We are specifically told who fasted. Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Paul, Jesus. That seems like pretty good company to be in. If this had value for them, it has value for us. On top of that, we read specifically about the way the early church incorporated fasting. So in Acts chapter 13, we read this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the early church fasted as a way to hear from God and as a way of committing ministry to him. Reference in Acts 14 is similar. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting... They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, one thing we ought to notice from those references in the book of Acts is the way that prayer always seemed to accompany fasting. The early church didn't fast for fasting's sake. They fasted as a way to discern God's direction and ask God for his blessing on their ministry ventures. As a bit of an aside, I've often been convicted just thinking about the fact that the early church called people to prayer and fasting. And usually when we call people to prayer or to a prayer meeting, we try to lure them with coffee and cinnamon buns, right? But listen, there is something powerful that happens when prayer is accompanied with fasting. There is a declaration of our utter dependence on God. There's a focusing that happens when we do it. So with the time we have left, I want to just quickly walk through a few of the practical benefits of fasting. And there are practical benefits to fasting. The first one is that fasting helps to reveal what controls us. I don't know what your experience has been like with fasting. I will tell you that during my first year of seminary, actually, I took a spiritual formation class. We explored the spiritual disciplines And for the first time in my Christian life, I decided to give fasting a try. So I committed myself that I would fast from after dinner Monday night until dinner on Tuesday night, really just skipping two meals each week. And there were parts of it that weren't difficult at all. I mean, skipping breakfast wasn't that big of a deal. Lunch was a little bit more challenging, but not impossible. The most difficult part to me was actually the snacks. See, and I hadn't really realized the way it worked, but if I was studying, I hadn't realized how often it was that, you know, if I happened to go by the pantry, I'm like, I'd just take a cookie and eat it. Hadn't realized how much of a habit it became just to kind of go over to the fridge, open the door and stare at it, you know, hoping to see just something I wanted to eat. But it kind of became clear to me in the midst of doing that. And what became clear to me in that practice, is that I would often comfort myself with small indulgences, and those things have a way of shaping you. Fasting doesn't just reveal the way food controls us. You begin to notice other things that have a hold on you. 
One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And fasting might reveal how little of it you possess. So I was just talking with people around the office and, and elsewhere. I had a few people ask me this week about fasting in regard to other things. Can you fast from stuff besides food? Well, fasting, as we've defined it, is about abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose, but we can apply that same practice to other things. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great doctor-turned-expositor from the last century, said this, Fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. So there is a way we can do this. Now, the closest I could come to a biblical example of that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul advises married couples like this. He says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your love. Uh, your lack of self-control. So Paul seems to be saying that it is appropriate at times to fast even from the good gift of marital sex for the purpose of prayer. That'd be a different type of fast. Now, but in principle, we could take this idea of fasting as abstaining from and apply it to a number of areas. Some people have spoken of the need for a digital fast. You know, maybe taking a day each week where you put your technology away and focus on a concentrated time of reading and prayer, or maybe it's just the social media you need to put away. And you might be surprised how hard it is to do that. But what you might learn in the process is that rather than your technology serving you, you are actually serving it. So I said that fasting can help reveal what controls us, but I could just have easily have said that fasting will help to reveal your idols. Those things that you think you cannot live without. So second benefit of fasting, which is that it can help us learn to resist temptation. Now, I want to be careful with this one because there's not an automatic connection between fasting or abstaining from food and resisting temptation. Paul tells us elsewhere that asceticism and the harsh treatment of the body have very little power when it comes to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But having said that, you can see the role that fasting played in Jesus' life and ministry right from the start. Matthew chapter 4 contains the account of Jesus' temptation, and it reads like this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So maybe it's not a surprise that after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry and that that Satan's first temptation to him was concerning food, turn these stones to bread. But what's interesting is that what might have seemed like a point of weakness, Jesus' hunger, actually turned out to be a source of strength. 
And Jesus' ability to resist temptation was no doubt due to a number of factors. He was being led by the Spirit. He was clearly meditating on God's Word. I mean, all three times he quotes Scripture, it's from the book of Deuteronomy. But there's no doubt that his self-denial when it came to food contributed to his ability to say no to Satan's temptations. In the same way, when fasting is combined with dependence on God in prayer and meditating on God's word, it gives us strength to resist the temptations that come our way. Third benefit of fasting, and this might be the most important one, is that it helps us develop a hunger for God. I said earlier that fasting is a declaration of our utter dependence on God. Fasting is, in the words of Deuteronomy, those words quoted by Jesus, a declaration that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting is a declaration that we find our full satisfaction in God. Now, we are all programmed or conditioned to think we need three square meals a day. But you know how it is sometimes when you are so engaged in something that you forget even to eat. It's a great story in John chapter 4 where Jesus comes into Samaria, or at least one of the villages of Samaria, and his disciples were off getting supplies somewhere, and he gets into this amazing conversation with a woman from Samaria that eventually leads to her salvation and the salvation of the whole village. And when his disciples come back, they say this, Or it says this, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Look, there's something else that produces satisfaction. It's not food alone. Man does not live by bread alone. So we learn to find this hunger. We learn to develop this hunger for God. Fasting, abstaining from food is a declaration that there is something even better than food, even better than sex, and that God can satisfy us in ways that the things of this earth never can. Here's how John Piper said it. He said, the newness of our fasting is this, and I'll close with this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. See, that's the new fasting. That we do. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your good gifts to us in this life. We thank you for the gift of food, the enjoyment we derive from it, the nourishment we get from it. But Lord, we know that food will never satisfy us in an ultimate sense. And we pray that even as we learn to wrestle through this, even as we learn to abstain from it at times so that we might have a hunger for you, God, we're just beginners in this, and so we pray for your help, the help of your spirit to help us do this, that our ultimate goal would be knowing you more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.